Father, we, uh, we are grateful, Lord, to be able to gather. Lord, we're thankful, we're thankful for the, uh, the outside area that we have. And, um, but, Lord, on a day like today, and even as we uh, are approaching winter, uh, to be able to have this space, Lord, has been a gift uh, to this congregation, and we're grateful for it. So, um, Lord, give us hearts that are even grateful for um, maybe the things that we often take for granted. We're especially grateful, Lord, for the Word of God. And whether we're sitting somewhere under a tree or in a nice room like this, Lord, we're grateful that the Word of God has been preserved for your people. And Lord, that um, we can come and we can sit under it. And even as we are reading it, we can let it read us and speak, Lord, uh, into the deep areas and places of our hearts. And Lord, to sit there with confidence ready to receive and allow you to examine us. And so, Father, that's one more thing, that's one more time, what we're asking you to do. Lord, use your word to open up our hearts that you might implant truth and that they may go down deep, that the roots, Lord, might descend deep and that much fruit would be born as a result of our gathering here this morning. So bless your word, we thank you for it. Bless your people now as we come before you, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, once more, we are in Acts 13. You're like, oh my goodness, five weeks now. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 13 once more. We will not finish it today, actually, so stop your grumbling, um, those of you. Uh, probably next week we will do so. Um, but just remind, remember, Acts uh, 13 begins that first missionary journey. The Apostle Paul, Barnabas, their assistant, a fellow by the name of Mark, feeling the call of the Lord, the whole church feeling, at least the leadership of the church, feeling this call of the Lord, we must do something. we got to go and reach these Gentiles that have no idea. They're in darkness, and they must see the light, and somebody must bring that light to them. And Paul, Barnabas, why not us? You know, send us. And they prayed, they laid hands on them, they sent them forth, and they headed out um, from the mainland there, that city, Syrian Antioch. Um, there today in Syria, Lebanon, that area of the, the world. And they headed out to the island of Cyprus and preached the gospel through the entire island, relatively small island there in the Mediterranean, but they preached the gospel through the entire island. And then from there they headed up into the mainland of Europe or Asia um, on the northern side of the Mediterranean uh, into what then was called Asia Minor, today the nation of Turkey. And we learned that there in this little place called Perga of Pamphylia, where uh, the, the tropical climate made it dangerous for folks, uh, particularly folks coming in not used to that, were picking up diseases. Malaria was very common there, and uh, it is thought that Paul perhaps picked it up there, and the, kind of the choice became either we stay here or we get out of here because someone's going to die um, from this disease. And so they decided, as God led, of course, that they would leave there. And they would head up into the north, and they perhaps didn't plan it, but they come to the mountainous region of Galatia. Uh, again, kind of like a state, for instance, where all those cities of Iconium and Laodicea and another Antioch are located. And Paul tells us this, Galatians chapter 4. He says, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. I hadn't planned on making my way up there, but God did. And he used something I would have never chosen, and he brought me to this particular place so that I could preach the gospel. And a, a church was born there 
in the city of Galatia, in the region of Galatia. And in many ways, it was born through the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, and particularly through the sermon that we've been looking at the last few weeks here. Acts 13, verse 14, it says this, Now Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and Mark left them, John Mark left them, and he returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Do we have that map for this here? No map. Well, imagine a map with a blue dot on it. Uh, that's where they went. Um, it's about 135 miles inland uh, into, uh, you know, again, uh, Asia, Asia Minor area there. And if you look at verse 14, the verse continues. It says, now on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sent down, they sat down. That was their, uh, their modus operandi. They would go into a new city. They'd find if, if there happened to be a synagogue there. Later in the book of Acts, they, they go to the edge of a riverbank. Because if there wasn't enough Jewish believers or Jewish people, we'll say that, in that particular community, the community, the Jewish community would gather, the ten of them or less, would gather there on a riverbank. And so sometimes we see Paul would go into the synagogue when there was enough Jews. Other times he would go on the riverbank and he would begin to communicate with these people. He would begin to connect with them through the Old Testament and point them to Jesus Christ. That's what he is doing in this particular sermon. So we've seen before already when they first come to the island of Cyprus, Luke tells us they went into a synagogue. He doesn't tell us what they talked about, but he tells us that they went into the synagogue, the opportunity was given, and Paul began to speak. Here, in this chapter, he tells us what they talked about. And it's really interesting for us, and it's probably an indicator of what he said in a lot of the synagogues that he went to. And so we have been making our way through this, and what we saw in this particular sermon is that Paul begins to recount the history of God's working with the Jewish people. So here are Jewish people that are sitting in front of him, and Paul begins to make his way through what we call the Old Testament, showing this is how God worked, with the Jewish people. The first thing that we saw, he said, look at verse 17 again as a review. He said, the God of our people chose our fathers. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. We remember that Abraham was from a polytheistic society and family, and the Lord called him out of that lifestyle, out of that religious concept and idea, and even out of that particular community to travel some 600 miles to the place that God was going to show him and the place that God was going to give him. Abraham didn't do anything. God did it. He chose him, and he brought him out, and Abraham just responded to what God was doing. He, he goes on in the second half of verse 17, and he reminds us essentially of the book of Exodus, that the Jewish people became a great people, great in number. Four million is estimated in number while they were down in Egypt as slaves. And as he says there, and he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And then he goes on and he points out, and with uplifted arm, he led them out. He took them out of Egypt, as we, we know in the great Exodus and what the book is named after. Paul goes on in verse 18 and he talks up with the way that during the time in the wilderness, God put up with the Jewish people. Again, I think the, the King James Version, New King James, hits it well when it says, suffered he their manners as they grumbled and as they complained and as they forgot what it was like to be a slave. We had it so much better when we were back in, in Egypt. Sure, we had to work every day for nothing and got whipped and all that kind of stuff, but we had bagels. We had, you know, it was great back then, and if only we could go back then. And he put up with it. 
and then the golden cow, all the things that went on uh, there in the wilderness. In verse 19, he talks about how he brought them into the promised land, a land that was originally uh, promised to Abraham 500 years, 450 years earlier, and God brought him into that land, and he gave them victory. It says in 19, after destroying the seven nations of Canaan, he gave them the land as their inheritance. So catch that. God raised up a nation. He then grew that nation. He delivered that nation. And then he brought that nation into a land of their own. These are the things that God had done. Verse 20, 21 and 22, Paul recounts the way that God provided judges for the nation, men and women, to guide them and direct them and lead them. In verse 21 and verse 22, he speaks of the way that he raised up a king for them and then how he brought the man that was after his own heart, David, King David, to lead and govern and rule the people as God would have him to do so. He was a man after God's own heart. And so in five to ten verses, somewhere around seven or eight verses, Paul tracks 1,000 years of the nation's history. He goes from Abraham to David, from about 2000 to 1000 BC, and he tracks this history. But again, be reminded, this isn't so much the history of the Jewish people. This is the history of God's working with the Jewish people. He is, and this is important to understand for the later part of the sermon, he is the active agent in each one of those examples. So God chose Abraham, God made the people great, God led them out of bondage, God put up with them in the wilderness, God delivered them, the land unto them, God provided for them judges and prophets and kings. God. God faithfully did the things that he said he would do on behalf of his people. And so you can conclude, God is faithful. And so even though there may not be a specific verse that Paul points to, the Bible says that God is faithful. He has just tracked that God is faithful. That's what we observe, and that's what Paul is trying to prove. And that brings Paul to kind of the apex of his sermon, what he is building to. And in verse 23, he says, Of this man's offspring, that's referring to David, that's the context, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus as he promised. See, once again, as he promised. He faithfully did what he said he would do. He has brought to Israel a Savior. And so one final time here in this build-up to the sermon, Paul demonstrates the way in which God acted on behalf of his people, this time by faithfully keeping his promise to David and sending forth one of his sons, his great-great-great-grandson, who we know to be Jesus. The whole lesson builds to this particular point. Through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Moses, and then Joshua, and then Samuel, and then David, Paul is weaving this path that he might get to Jesus, who is the consummation of God's plan, the salvation of mankind. That's what Paul is trying to get to for his listeners that are in front of him, the consummation of God's plan. This is what God intended for thousands of years, even before the foundations of the earth were laid. So if we were creating an outline of Paul's sermon, just sort of jotting, maybe he did that. He sketched out, what do I want to talk about when I get there? If we were going to create an outline of his sermon, there might be two parts to it. Part one, what God has done. And part two, how will you now respond? 
And you'll notice that in this particular sermon. But before Paul asks that question, a lot of preachers do that. They come to the end, and so now, what will you do with these things you've heard? All right, but before Paul gets to that, he gives examples of two different groups and how they responded to God's uh, faithful promise of bringing forth Jesus. The first, you look at verse 24, and this is kind of our new material for today. It says this, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism. So which John is that in our Bibles? John, you guys are very bright. John the Baptist, he says, before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And, John, and as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? What, and he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul, or yeah, Paul is going to give two examples of different individuals or groups and how they responded to Jesus. The first one is John the Baptist. That's the first example he's going to provide for us. And as many of us here are aware, and maybe some of us aren't, but as many of us are aware, before the emergence of the public ministry of Jesus came the ministry of this man we call John the Baptist. And as Paul points out here, in preparation for the ministry of Jesus, John went out and he preached a message of repentance, which would be demonstrated by baptism. So what John was doing was, remember John would say a lot, the kingdom of God is at hand. What John was doing was readying the hearts, or he was encouraging the people to ready their hearts for the coming kingdom. We read that in Matthew chapter 3. And then John went further and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Live your life, respond in such a way, demonstrating that you are readying your heart for the coming of the kingdom of God. And again, to signify that, he had people, he baptized people in the Jordan River. John the Baptist responded to Jesus as all the earth should respond to Jesus. That's Paul's point. He's giving an example of one who responded correctly to the coming of the Messiah or just about the coming of the Messiah. And again, how did he respond? He prepared his heart and he worked to prepare the hearts of others as well to receive the Lord. And then notice as Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 25, one thing John never did was never lost sight of who Jesus really was. Again, there you read there, he says, what do you suppose that I am? What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. John never lost sight of who Jesus really was. He was the one who was worthy, not John. And he gives an example here. I'm not even uh, able to uh, untie his sandals. Actually, there was a, it was almost like a, kind of like a law that was put in place. If you were a teacher and you had disciples, those disciples, it's like Mr. Miyagi with, you know, the Karate Kid guy, you know, paint the fence. Why am I painting the fence? Just do what I told you to do. Trust me. That kind of thing. So the disciples pretty much had to do whatever their master, their teacher said. But a law was put in place that to require them to to undo your, late, your sandals on your dirty feet or to wash your feet, that was asking too much even uh, of, you know, a voluntary disciple in that particular way. John here says, it's not like too low for me. It's not low enough for me. 
John says, as far as his relationship to this Christ. And so John never forgot to the very end to point people, not to himself, but to point people to Jesus. Again, declaring that even, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So John saw the promised fulfilled, the fulfilled promise of Jesus Christ, and he responded properly to it. He embraced it. He embraced Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. That's the first example that Paul gives. Now, the second group of people that Paul presents to us, they responded very, very differently. And they begin in verse 26. It says, Now, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. First example is John the Baptist and his followers. The second example here, it says in verse 27, is those who live in Jerusalem uh, and their rulers. And so this would refer to the priest, the Sanhedrin, the scribes. It refers to those religious leaders of the Jewish people, headquartered, as we know, in the city of Jerusalem. These are the ones that he's going to use as his second example. And unfortunately, it's a negative example. These are those that responded poorly to the coming one, a term that is used of the promised Messiah. And sadly, they worked actively against the coming one. So John went out and he promoted and encouraged people. You need to repent. You need to show signs of repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. These particular folks that, John, that Paul's going to point to, they did the exact opposite. And so Paul writes, notice in verse 27, he says, they did not recognize him. Commenting on this, same idea, same concept, we read this in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, it says this, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. You know, that, that solid first chapter of the book of John. He came to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people did not receive him. Paul words it this way, they did not recognize him. A little bit later in the book of John, John explains what he means with that particular verse in John chapter 3, and he says this, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than their light, the light, because their works were evil. Why didn't they receive him? Because they loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved their sin rather than the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so these religious leaders, they didn't receive the coming one that had been promised to them. Again, because they loved darkness rather than light. Paul goes on, look in verse 27, uh, toward the end, right in the middle of that verse. He said, nor did they understand the utterances of their prophets. Now, I think we've, we've studied together collectively enough of the Old Testament that perhaps we could say not only that they, they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, but that they wouldn't understand the utterances of the prophets, many of them. The religious leaders, we know, we see this in the Gospels, we saw this in the Gospels, they had determined what manner of Messiah they would accept. 
They wanted a conquering king who would come in and overthrow the Roman government. You give me that God, I'll take it. Otherwise, we're not interested. And so they rejected the coming one because the coming one, Jesus Christ, did not fit that bill. Now remember, what did a, a Sabbath service look like? We talked about this the last few weeks. There would be some prayers. There'd be a reading from the law. There'd be a reading from the prophets. Somebody would get up and explain it. And then there would be another prayer, and they would close out their service. And so every time that they came together, and no doubt other times when they gathered, they would read, among other things, the prophets. And yet they missed what the prophets were saying. And so they would read every Sabbath of his coming, but they would not submit themselves to God and his plan. And instead, as you see at the end of verse 27, Instead, what did they do? They condemned him, it says. They fulfilled them by condemning them. It goes on in verse 28, and though they found no guilt worthy of death, that's the exact same thing that they called upon Pilate to do. Verse 28 says, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Now, many of us are familiar with that passage because it comes up a lot around Easter and Good Friday and things like that. But you remember the interaction, Pilate calling out to the crowd, Jesus had been arrested, beaten, all these kinds of things. Pilate calls out to the crowd, what shall I do with this Jesus? And the response of the crowd was, let him be crucified. Pilate, somewhat shocked, why? What evil has he done? We read that there in Matthew 27. And they don't answer the question. Riled up by the Jewish leaders, rather they just yell out again, louder, let him be crucified. And so, though there was nothing worthy of death, even as Pilate admitted, Nonetheless, they uh, demanded that he have Jesus executed. Now, what's fascinating in all of this is the little phrase, I think at least, in the middle of those verses that we're considering where it says, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Again, the them refers to the prophecies. So they read these Old Testament prophecies all the time. They didn't understand. They wouldn't understand them. And yet, he says, but they fulfilled them by condemning him. So they did not, and they, or they would not understand the prophecies, but in condemning Jesus, they actually fulfilled the prophecies. Prophecies like this. This is Isaiah 53, 5. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Here's another one from Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here's another one also from Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Another one. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here's one from Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That passage goes on to say, and every one of my bones is out of joint, hanging, describing the cross. A person who doesn't have no idea what a cross is, in Psalm 22, a thousand years earlier, describing death on a cross. 
So the very prophets that they had rejected, they were fulfilling with this rejection. So they were the ones that had despised and rejected the Lord. They were the ones that had turned their faces from him because of how marred he had become. They were the ones that oppressed him and afflicted him and pierced his hands and his feet. And so God, in his divine plan, worked through their rebellion and sin to still accomplish his purposes because he's faithful and he will keep his promises. And man can't thwart that as much as man was trying to do so. And so God used even their sin to accomplish his good, which is the salvation of mankind. What a message this is that Paul's giving, huh? Verse 29, he says, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, and they laid him in a tomb. Now notice there, we might, if we were writing that, we probably wouldn't use the word tree. We, say, we would say they took him down from the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. But I think Paul does this by design. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, what he's doing is essentially, here's another prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, we learn that anyone that is hanged upon a tree is cursed by God, it says. I'll read it to you. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Now don't think of like a noose that we're thinking of, um, but think of it more like the cross. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God, and you shall not defile the land, your land that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance. Now, for the Jewish leaders, that was like their go-to. Well, Jesus can't be the Messiah, because Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is any man that is hanged upon a tree. So for the Jewish leaders, the fact that Jesus was crucified on the, the tree Regardless of any other thing out there, that disqualifies him. Let's move on to some other issue for the Jewish leaders. But the argument that Paul is making is that Jesus is the Messiah because he became the cursed of God on a tree or on the cross. Paul will later state this idea. So you might be thinking, like, how do you know that? Because he talks about it later on. That's how we know that. One part of the scripture explaining another that we may not understand. And so later on in the book of Galatians, who is where he's at, remember? He's up in the region of Galatia. Paul will state that Jesus was cursed so that others could be blessed. Here's the verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For remember, it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. And I imagine that the scenario was Paul encountered enough of Jewish leaders that pointed to Deuteronomy 21, and here now in his sermon and later on in his writings, Paul references the same verse that they like to reference and saying, yes, that proves my point. He was cursed for you and I. He was condemned that we might be redeemed. Or as commonly, as commonly articulated, he paid the price of our sin. And so again, to quote the Apostle Paul, this time from 2 Corinthians, it says, for our sake, he, that's the father, made him, that's the son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, the son, we might become the righteousness of God. He paid the price of our sin. And those that had rejected the scriptures were actually the ones that fulfilled the scriptures. 
because the scriptures predicted that God's Holy One would suffer and that he would die and he would do so by being pierced upon that tree, quote unquote. Now that's not all that the scriptures predicted. Look at verse 30. Paul alludes here to the resurrection. He doesn't allude to it. He talks about it pretty clearly. It says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Have you ever noticed how many times in your Bible you come across those couple of words, but God? I don't know if you have, but you will now. Like, you'll be, hey, there it is again. There it is again. In the English Standard Version, the Bible that I use, and in most other versions are pretty similar numerically, 592 times in the ESV, I counted every one of them. I did not. It's on Strong's. Uh, you can do it too. 592 times do you have those two words side by side, but God. I saw one of the young ladies here had a shirt on. It just simply said, but God, and I want one. Um, and so if you have one, double um, X is what I prefer wearing. But despite man's best effort to thwart the plans and the workings of God, God continually, faithfully, persistently, and effectively accomplished his purposes. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, starting with Abraham and working your way all the way to the days of Jesus Christ, God persists continually, faithfully, persistently, and effectively accomplished his purposes. And so man did his best to fight against Jesus. They even went so far as to kill him. But what's the phrase? But God. But God was greater than man's sin. He was greater than man's rebellion. And Jesus rose from the grave accomplishing once and for all victory over sin and death. And that's what Paul's point is here. But God raised him from the dead. And almost as if he's anticipating, some might like, well, how do you know that? And notice what he goes on to do. He provides additional witnesses. And in the form of those that were eyewitnesses, he says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. Men and women who are now, just like Paul, testifying to that truth, that Jesus is no longer in the grave. Men and women that were sent forth to tell others the good news, as you see in the verse there, that what God had promised, God had fulfilled again. And so I say this pretty often, the cross was no accident. And in the same way, neither was the resurrection. And so the cross was not the result of things kind of spinning wildly out of control. There's some people that suggest that the, G, Judas's motivation uh, for turning in Jesus, you know, for the bribe and all that kind of stuff, was to kind of force Jesus's hand so he would respond. Some people kind of suggest that concept there. And then like, oh my gosh, everything went out of control and, I, I, and you know, that kind of thing. That's not what happened at all. The cross was no accident and neither was the resurrection. The cross was not the result of circumstances spinning wildly out of control, and the resurrection was not the result of some good fortune where everything worked out in the end. That was, these were the intent before the foundation of the earth, the cross and the resurrection, prophesied in our scriptures hundreds of years in advance. And Paul, in his sermon, shares just a few of these resurrection prophecies, just as I referenced earlier, 
just a few of the crucifixion prophecies. And so notice what Paul does in verse 33. He's going to quote Psalm chapter 2 when he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I don't know if I've read this, let me read it. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Paul's point is that the resurrection proves that Jesus truly is the one he said he was, God's holy son. Next, he's going to go on. Paul's going to address the claim that Jesus, well, that some might say, well, Jesus can't be the holy Messiah because he died on a tree. And cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So look at what he does in verse 34. Now he's going to reference Isaiah 55. And there, in verse 3 of that chapter, we read, and I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. So the Jewish religious leaders were saying that God would have rejected Jesus because of the manner of his death. Paul argues that his resurrection proves that God had not rejected him because of the manner of his death, but rather embraced him in the work that he did on the cross. Verse 35, he quotes Psalm 1610, and there he, he tells us that God's Holy One would not see corruption. By that, what we mean is the body being put in the grave and eventually decaying and the like. And Paul explains the cross by the resurrection. Again, the cross is the payment while the resurrection is the receipt. Jesus rose in victory over the grave, never to die anymore. His body did not see decay. Paul goes on in verse 36, I think in response to an anticipated argument, something Paul does a lot in his sermons and in his writings. And in verse 36, he says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption, but he whom God raised up from the dead did not see corruption. And so it seems Paul is anticipating that some of his listeners might say, oh, but that's referring to David. And he says, well, David has a grave right over there. Well, not from where they were, but you can go down to Jerusalem, you can see David's grave. And if you wanted to, you could open it up and you could see the leftovers of his bones and the body that has decayed. And so he says, it can't be referring to King David, but it must be referring to another. Paul, in his words, he said, David fell asleep. David was laid with his fathers. He was buried. David saw corruption. So the passage can't be speaking about him. And what Paul says is, rather, it was speaking about David's son, his great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus, whom the Lord raised from the dead. It was he whose body would not see corruption. So Paul, he's tr tracing through the scriptures, their scriptures, to show how they predicted their rejection, how God predicted his resurrection. And then in verse 38, Paul declares maybe the most wonderful evangelical words found in our Bible. A, a verse of our Bibles that can offer hope to any one of us, or for any one of us, if we're followers of Christ already, any one of us that care for somebody that is not yet a follower. Notice it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. A commentator I enjoy, Henry Ironside, he said this, this is one of the greatest gospel statements that we have in all of our Bibles. And I believe that is correct. 
Now, before taking notice of what Paul is going to go on to declare, notice who Paul declares it to. He says, let it be known to you, brothers. Now, that is referring to the Jewish people. The Jewish people that had rejected the Messiah and had him nailed to a tree, even unto them, this gift is offered. And what's the gift? Paul tells us, verse 38, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Paul then goes on and he says, essentially, and not just to these listeners, you guys that are in front of me, he says, but to everyone who believes. You see that there in the middle portion uh, or in the beginning of verse 39. So there's not, and and we know this, there's not one gospel for Jewish people and one gospel for Gentile people. And there is not one gospel for the truly down and out reprobate and another one for the so not so bad suburban housewife. There's one gospel for all the world. Paul would say this to Timothy. Uh, Will read earlier from Timothy, and he said this. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, which is the man, Christ Jesus. And it's through Jesus and his work alone that a person's, any person's sins can be forgiven. Not through the law, not through good deeds, not through sufficient remorse. I felt bad enough about my sin, so God will look past it. Not through any of those things. But the scripture is clear. And now the whole world may not agree with this, and, but that's what the Bible teaches. I agree with it because that's what the scripture brings forth. Paul declares in verse 39, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed, by the law of Moses. By him, everyone who believes is freed from the penalty of our sin. That word freed, maybe your version uses a different word. Uh, If it does, it's likely going to use the word justified. It's a word which has become significant in Paul's writings in particular as a doctrinal concept in the Christian faith. And Paul spends a lot of his writings really hammering on justification by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. He really spends a lot of time on this in the book of Romans. He spends time on this in the book of Ephesians. He spends time on this in the book of Galatians. And this is the first time that we have recorded for us, at least, use of this word in the Christian message, so to speak, this idea of being freed from the penalty of our sin or being justified. And a a simple way to remember, okay, well, what is justification? What does justified mean? A simple way to remember it is this, just as if you've never sinned, or just as if I've never sinned. And that says it all, where God will look upon a person as if they are spotless and without sin. And how does that come about? Paul just told us, and by him, everyone who believes is justified, is freed, from their sin, just as if I'd never sinned. And so though every one of us is guilty as sin, of sin, what we see is that we can be declared clean and pure and even righteous in the presence of God. And that's a term the Bible goes on to use often, righteous, for those that trust in the work of Jesus Christ. So the law of Moses can never do this. Paul says that very clearly in verse 39. But what the law could not do, 
Jesus Christ did. The law of Moses can't take away sin. What the law of Moses does is it points out sin. I'd encourage you this week as a supplemental reading to our study, read the book of Romans chapter 7 in particular. Because there in the book of Romans chapter 7, this man, Paul, writing, talking, who was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, he was a Jew of the Jew, he was a guy that he did everything he needed to do he kept all of the laws, or at least he thought that he kept all of the laws, until finally the law revealed one area that he could not master, which was covetousness. And he said that the law revealed my need. That's what the law is supposed to do. We're not given an Old Testament. We're not given Ten Commandments. Keep these Ten Commandments so that God will say, all right, good enough, you did it, and you can get into heaven. Because one sin will keep any of us from the perfection of God's presence. One sin will keep us from that. So the purpose of the law isn't designed to tell us what we can do. It's to reveal to us that we can't do it. It's to reveal to us, I need something else. Again, it's to reveal our need. And so even the most moral man or woman falls short of keeping the law of God perfectly. And thus they fall short of the perfect righteous standard that is required by God. But God, but that which man is unable to do, God has done. And he has done so through the work of Christ on the cross. And this is what Paul is proclaiming to likely this little synagogue that is tucked up in the mountains of Asia Minor, that God has made a way through the cross and that the resurrection is the divine seal of approval upon that work. What a wonderful declaration Paul presents to us forgiveness of sins, justification from all things offered to all who believe in the Lord Jesus. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ who bore the punishment of our sin in our place that you and I, that everyone, everyone who believes can now stand before God as if we had never sinned. We can lay on our deathbed, not tortured, by what might happen ahead of us, but confident that I will enter into his presence. And I'm not saying we should all wish to be dead or something like that, but we can be at peace and we can have rest and we can longingly look forward to the day when we will see our Savior face to face, even though we are completely knowledgeable of the fact of how much sin we have. You know, sometimes people have trouble coming to church because of sin. Something that went on this particular week and everyone's going to know and they're going to be looking at me. And people approach God in that exact same way. He knows we are fully aware that we all have sinned. We know that. And yet because of the work of Christ, he sees us as spotless. The righteousness of Christ is what he sees in us and on us. And he gladly ushers us in to his presence. I'm going to quote one more time from Galatians. The Apostle Paul, he said this, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The glorious doctrine of justification by faith is so important for us as believers. It grants us such a peace to go about our lives as believers. 
And so I want to close with this. This is from William McDonald. He's a commentator I enjoy, and he wrote this about justification. I think he said it well. He said, justification is the act of God for which he declares to be righteous those ungodly sinners who receive his Son as Lord and Savior. It is the means by which the sinner is cleared of every charge that is against him. He says, God doesn't merely overlook sin, but he righteously acquits the guilty sinner because the penalty for his sins has been fully met by the substitutionary work of another, the Lord Jesus on the cross. That is our hope. We're not more righteous than other people. We have the righteousness of Christ. And we gladly embrace that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer, uh, just to begin, is that every one of us here would understand that truth. Lord, those that are not yet believers, Lord, that you would open up their heart to the truth that there's nothing that they can do to earn your love, to earn your satisfaction, to earn your approval. But all was done on the cross. And they can simply come in faith, acknowledge their sin, and that Christ gave his life to pay the penalty of their sin. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that they could become the righteousness of Christ. Father, for those of us here that do believe, and we've had uh, that experience with you, Lord, you know that sometimes we wrestle with feeling worthy. We wrestle with whether God will accept us. And Lord, I pray today, Lord, uh, that the truth of 1 John, that for those that are in Christ, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just, and you will cleanse us. And nothing needs to be between us and you. We don't have to carry any baggage. We don't have to have any burden on our back. We can leave it at the cross of Christ and walk in the freedom and the justification we've experienced by the work of Christ so that truly every one of us will leave here today with a great joy, Lord, that has enlarged our hearts and sends us forth, Lord, into the world in which we live for your glory.